once again to another episode of The Wall Behind and Beyond. I am your host, Philip A. Jones. Today we have a guest by the name of Charlotte West. He is an education journalist who covers education in prison. He has a newsletter called College Inside that is produced by Open Campus, a national nonprofit news world. He has more than 10 years experience in the field of writing on various topics such as education, housing, juvenile justice, and politics, the name of you. Please welcome to the show, Charlotte West. How are you doing, Charlotte? Good. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. We've been looking forward to talking to you about some of these uh, educational questions. So we're going to get right to it and get into the show. Um, the first thing that I would like to ask is, you know, tell us where you're from and a little bit about your background, please. So I've been a journalist for uh, more than 10 years. It's it's a passion that I've had since I was a kid. And um, I've been an education journalist specifically, and then I've been covering prison education since um, just last year. So this is a relatively new, new beat for me. For sure, for sure. Well... And that's why we're here, you know, and the listeners are curious. So, you know what I mean? We want to ask you some questions um, that I think will help a lot of people in terms of navigating the inside for their educational purposes, their loved ones. So tell us about Open Campus Media uh, and your newsletter, College Inside, which I received, by the way. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you you got your copy finally. Um, so Open Campus is a national nonprofit newsroom focused on covering higher education, and it was started a couple years ago by my editors um, and their former veteran editors of the Chronicle of Higher Ed, uh, which is a, a publication focused on education, but really sort of focuses on, on an audience that's within colleges and universities. Um, so they, I, they wanted to just, um, do a startup newsroom. Um, so we're, we're a virtual newsroom. So we have um, national reporters located across the country. Um, most folks are on the East Coast, but I'm actually located here um, on the West Coast. Um, and so we cover areas like I, I cover prison education. Um, my colleagues cover diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education. And then my um, another colleague covers rural education. So the whole idea of Open Campus is to really um, cover areas of higher ed that traditionally don't get a lot of coverage in mainstream media. Um, and one of the ways we sort of get the word out about what we're doing is through our various newsletters. So my newsletter, College Inside, um, focuses on prison education. And it's, you know, we kind of cover everything from individual stories to um, kind of deeper dives into policy around things like Pell Grant Restoration, which is coming um, next year in June, July 2023. Um, so, you know, I'm our audience is everyone from incarcerated students to the people running the prison education programs to policymakers who are making decisions about things like Pell Grants for people in prison. And, you know, I think we're going to talk a little bit later on about how how the newsletter has developed over time. Absolutely. That was dope. You know, I think um, anytime you're talking about education, you know what I mean? I get excited because uh, I'm one of the people who say uh, that new knowledge comes to change in one's behavior. So that conversation goes back to uh, recidivism. Once a person gets educated, they no longer think the same. I love your articles, by the way, uh, which I can relate to because I'm in college now. But I fell behind to the COVID, you know, me transferring to other institutions. Um, why do you think college students in prison haven't been given internet access uh, on the so-called laptops being offered uh, to select students in classes? Because we could finish our classes and get our uh, credits up if we had the ability to do the work um, and then send it in or email it in. Uh, but we don't have that as of yet. So what are your thoughts on that? 
I mean, I guess it depends on who you talk to about why um, there's so many restrictions on technology in prison. I know some places have definitely been more um, more receptive to letting in technology. And I think the pandemic pushed that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. Like right now, if you have lim- zero internet access, the laptops fun- are basically word, you know, fancy typewriters, um, which is probably certainly better than handwriting, you know, a 10 page paper. But um, I know you research access is one of the big things. Um, I think some places are working on um, with company or uh, organizations like JSTOR um, through Ithaca SNR um, that are focused on rolling out uh, JSTOR, which is a database of um, academic materials and, and different research resources. Um, so it's actually sort of a, a, it's still, it's not directly connected to the internet, but it, it would allow um, incarcerated students and, and other people who are interested in doing research and actually accessing those academic resources. Um, but that's still sort of at the at the pilot stages um, at a select handful of prisons. I don't think that's happening across the country, but I know that um, that that's that's just an example of <clears throat> some of the things that are happening. Um, you know, I think the role of libraries and allowing students and and patrons to access, you know, just like you would in the law library, you can access um, the different law um, databases. I think there are some movements towards, you know, connecting to the college library or or things like that. Um, But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that a lot of this, you know, a lot of the incarcerated students that I've talked to, especially those doing research papers are really dependent on either, you know, what material their professors provide to them, or they're relying on friends and family members on the outside to print and send in hard copies of, of academic articles. You know, and what you said, I agree with um, totally, but even when you go up to the college floor, if you get on a computer, you can access a digital encyclopedia. Um, so that's a lot of information stored within the program. So even if they would put that on the laptop, so when you go and research and looking at the facts on that you can um, write papers on it. I think that they got to start somewhere and I'm probably, and that's probably the first place they'll start, like you say, with the date store packages full of information that you can um, access but doesn't give you internet access. I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, there, there's testing of technology to see sort of what that looks like. Um, so hopefully we'll start to see more of a movement. Um, you know, I think initially there was even concern about letting students have access to the physical laptops. Um, and I think that's changed a little bit also with like access to the like GTL tablets and things like that. But again, the GTL tablets are they're, they have ed, quote unquote educational content on them, but I don't think that's like the primary way that people are getting things like a college education. Yeah, I was telling you also earlier, my uh, a friend of mine, um, Dr. Stanley Andrick, uh, who runs the uh, physics professionals program, was going to come out here and have a meeting with the uh, educators and the uh, and the people who are in the hierarchies of the uh, administration of DOT. Because uh, I, when I did the college program, anybody else was on Zoom, even uh, including a couple of the guys who were incarcerated in other places but i was not i was on the phone and it's like why don't we even have a zoom like that we can get on with these type of purposes so again everything happens in time uh, but i think we got to continue to push forward and we got to let them know the necessity of it because we're going back out to a society full of technology and, and students incarcerated won't know the first thing they do and that's a part of success so thank you for giving us some feedback on that from your perspective what does full 
Tell restoration next year means for prison education and incarcerated students. And uh, who do you think will have access and who won't? And what are some barriers uh, incarcerated students might face in accessing a Pell Grant? So, I mean, I think this is the big question about um, prison education right now. I think a lot of people, you know, have been waiting for 20, 28 years since the, the 1994 crime bill to sort of see, um, to, to bring Pell back. Um, and, I, and I do think it's an important step forward in terms of increasing access. Um, but it's still, it's not going to be the solution that I think people think it is. So um, first, let, let's talk a little bit about the barriers that they've discovered. So in 2015, 2016, President Obama launched the Second Chance Pell Program, and it started with 67 um, experimental Pell sites, and that has expanded to 200 um, Pell sites just this for this this year for 2022, 2023. Um, and I think the, and that had some sentence restrictions. So if you had life without parole, you weren't eligible to participate and receive Pell funding. Um, some of the other barriers were things like um, it, male students who hadn't registered for the selective service that automatically disqual- disqualified them from participating in Pell. Um, another big barrier was students who had previous college experience um, a lot of times might have gone into loan default, particularly when they go to prison or unable to manage their loans. Um, so there's good news on like those fronts. This, um, there, there was also a barrier for drug convictions. So the good news is the drug convictions, the selective service requirement have been removed from the FAFSA altogether. So those are no longer barriers. Um, the other thing that's happened is uh, just this spring in April, the education department announced um, what they call Fresh Start. And so they are bringing anyone who has defaulted student loans, they're bringing those accounts into good standing. So it's a sort of a fresh start. Um, so those are really important um, things that have removed uh, barriers to, to accessing Pell. So now um, the idea is by next summer, June, uh, July 2023, instead of just being available at those 200 sites that have second chance Pell sites, um, it's sort of opening up the field for Pell access. The problem is, um, and the education department is deciding on the specific rules right now, is how are those Pell dollars going to be accessed? Um, And I think the problem right now is you still have to, it's not like you can just fill out, an individual can fill out the FAFSA and then use Pell dollars at any education program they want that can provide that mode of instruction. Um, You have to be in a, at a facility that has a Pell eligible program. And how that's decided is decided at the DOC level at the state. So for instance, um, in Washington state, you know, the community college, well, the community colleges tend to use state funding, but just say we're, we're seeing expansions of bachelor's programs. So the, and this is not a specific program that's actually happening, but just say Evergreen, you know, if Evergreen wants to have a four-year degree offered in the prisons, they have to enter into an agreement with the Washington State Department of Corrections. And they and you have to be incarcerated at a facility where that college will be offering that particular program. So again, this is why this is um, increasing a lot of access um, that wasn't available before but there's still going to be severe limitations. There's there, And there's nothing that um, says that a, um, you know, a Department of Corrections could just say, you know what, we don't want Pell altogether. I don't foresee that happening in places like Washington, but um, there are some states where that could be the case. Absolutely. And when you think of rehabilitation uh, and reentry success, how can this even be possible uh, without education? Everybody should have access to higher education in order for rehabilitation and reentry 
I mean, so I think, you know, I think that the GED is, is an important step to sort of increasing access to college in the sense that, like, you know, you need to have a high school diploma or a GED to be eligible for college programs. The problem is, I think, the way that um, higher education in prison is provided, like, you have to be at a prison near a college that has the professors willing to um, come into the prison. And a lot of times there are faculty that are willing to do that, but um, depending on the prison, it's, you know, they, some prisons, in prison systems in certain states seem like, you know, that's not really a priority to let the colleges um, come in. And I think this is the biggest thing. Um, it would be fantastic if the, like higher education was a requirement, just like the, the adult basic education in K through 12. But um, it's the, the way that education is provided and who provides it is a little bit different. Um, the qualifications to teach a GED, there's a much lower bar than, you know, for example, for someone to teach a college class. And so this becomes a huge problem for um, prisons that are away from you know, major uh, from big cities and things like that. Um, you know, and I think you see this in in Washington State, particularly with the closure of the Washington State Reformatory. Um, you know, the it had the University Beyond Bars program that had faculty coming from Seattle and Tacoma. Um, it, you know, the next closest um, prison is uh, Washington Correction Center in Shelton, um, but even that's you know more than an hour away from from Seattle. So it, it gets harder and harder to recruit um, faculty to to drive that bar to come in and teach. Absolutely, and I understand that full hand. And that's why I think now, uh, with some of the closures of these prisons, which is a wonderful thing, that means that they're cut the uh, amount of people that have um, incarcerated in the state. Well, but they people shut down prisons, which ones are closer to metro areas or bigger cities, um, so that they can continue to get uh, quality uh, help from teachers and educators who want to uh, participate. My next question would be, can you tell us how College Inside grew out of what was supposed to be a digital newsletter? Sure. Um, I mean, I think that's a great that's a great question because, you know, when we started covering prison education, I think we were originally just envisioning College Inside as to be like a, an email that comes out every two weeks. And obviously the the audience for that would be people who can receive, um, you know, regular email. Um, but I quickly realized that both in terms of like who I was writing, you know, in terms of telling the stories that I really wanted to tell, I needed to develop um, relationships with sources who are directly impacted. So that's incarcerated students. Um, so and, and also I realized that a lot of the information that I had was, you know, almost more, one of the biggest problems I think with prison education and people being able to educate themselves is a lack of information about um, what programs are available, what, you know, what, what do things like Pell mean? Um, and so we, you know, we decided that we wanted to figure out how to get that information to um, people inside. So I literally started by, you know, Googling to see what local stories had been written about a graduation at a particular prison. Um, and then, you know, I, I talked to some criminal justice reporters who already have a strong network of sources inside and, you know, figured out how all the different systems with like JPay and CoreLinks and uh, GTL, Viapath, like how all of those different systems work. And I just started, um, you know, either sending letters or for people who have, have 60 seconds remaining or people who have access to tablets, just writing to them directly Um either sending them a copy of the newsletter or, um, you know, asking if they wanted to be added to the mailing list. So, you know, in December when we started, I think I sent, I printed out myself and sent, you know, copies to 10 people. Um, and then we quickly realized that um, I couldn't continue to do it 
by hand. Um, so then we started designing it as a PDF and then found a system online where we can we have 30 seconds remaining, upload it and, and send it out. And at this point, my inside mailing list is actually bigger than my um, outside email list. That's awesome. I'm going to pick it up on the other side because I have some commentary for you in regards to what you were saying in a minute. Thank you all for listening, subscribing, and sharing my podcast. Here are three ways to help me today. Consider donating, if you can, to my GoFundMe for my freedom efforts. You can find that by typing in Incarcerated Lives Matter, Philip Alvin Jones on GoFundMe. Subscribe today to my YouTube channel, The Wall Behind and Beyond. Comment and share. We are on our journey to a 1,000 subscribers. We can do this. Visit GrantParoleToPhilip.com. It's a one-stop shop that has my direct contact info and awesome social media sites. Please get in touch with us if you'd like to help in any way with Team Philip. Thank you, and keep listening to The Wall, Behind and Beyond. This call will be recorded and monitored. Yeah, picking back up where we left off, I think, but do you think there's a place inside education for targeted study uh, where a person can go into the, to the education program and take a skill um, that they could translate into a job upon leaving prison. Yeah, I mean, so I think you're getting into like uh, a really important part of prison education. And it, there's, I mean, I guess there are like, you know, three different types of learning or like there are three different, you know, there's informal learning. And, you know, I most people I've talked to sort of start their education starts with them reading a book or a visit to the prison library, you know, just something really uh, sparks your intellectual curiosity and that, that desire for knowledge. And then people sort of take it upon themselves to take advantage of every opportunity that comes along. Um, And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that informal, that knowledge that people get through informal means. Um, And then, you know, there are obviously different types of education. There's like career and technical education, which is much more focused on, as you mentioned, like learning a specific skill or learning a specific trade. And then of course, there's the more academic um, kind of college program. I mean, I do think an increasing number of prisons are starting to offer more career and technical uh, programs. So that might be HVAC, that might be welding. Um, I think the problem you know, you were talking about just access to things like Coursera or things like that. I think that's really important for just gaining knowledge. The challenge comes if you're talking specifically about reentry is like, unfortunately, we as a society do put a primacy on like formal credentials, whether that's an industry certification for a specific skill. So, I mean, I think if you're using more informal learning opportunities to demonstrate that you have skill and knowledge, it, it really kind of is dependent upon the individual and their ability to talk about that with a potential employer in a way that um, translates. If that does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. Thank you so much for your feedback on that. And I think that that was an excellent point um, so that people could understand the difference and make the distinction. So what is a nonprofit newsroom and the role of journalism in advocating for cultural reform? So um, as a nonprofit newsroom, basically what that means is that we're primarily funded through grants and individual donations. Um, We have an entire team that does, um, you know, that writes the grant applications and does individual fundraising. But in terms of our content and what makes us different from sort of a commercial newsroom is that, you know, we don't 
charge for our content. We never have a paywall. Um, we will work with a lot of other nonprofit newsrooms and distribute our content through them. So, you know, I work with um, public other publications such as JJIE, which covers juvenile justice. So if I write something about, um, you know, college programs for young people in the justice system, they'll co-publish. Um, so it's what, what I guess I, what I really like about um, nonprofit news is that you're not chasing the advertising revenue um, and you can really focus on the quality of the content. Um, and so, you know, when we get a grant, uh, what that means is they they don't, there's an editorial, what we call an editorial firewall. They're not telling us what we write about it, other than these larger like buckets. So Ascendium sponsors my position at Open Campus. Um, and so they, it's in a bucket of prison education, but they're not telling me like, you need to look at this specific story or anything like that. We have complete editorial independence, which is a really important, um, I guess, principle of of journalism. And so that that's what makes us a little bit different than, um, I guess, traditional news, if that makes sense. Yes. And uh, that was something that we had touched on a little earlier. It's um, understood that, you know, when you're in journalism, you are reporting on things. Um, and there's a big difference between putting uh, or certain types of reform. But journalism definitely plays a role because the stories you're telling are making people aware um, and educating people on um, some options that they may have. Um, and so I think that's dope too. So I, I actually forgot right. to answer. I'd answer, forgotten to answer the second part of your question, which was about the role of journalism in reform. So, but for that, that exactly as you said, like you know, as as a journalism organization, we're not an advocacy organization. We're not a direct service organization. Um, but what you know, what, what we call ourselves investigating innovation in higher education, and so that you know, really, there's an investigative element to what we do. Um, so for my beat in particular. Um, it's not, you know, I, we have a lot of stories about the power of education and the power of education to transform people's lives. And I think there's, you know, those stories are exceptionally important and those are kind of the most fun to write. Um, but there are also lots of stories about, you know, who has access, who doesn't, and, and some of the challenges of actually providing um, prison education. And, um, you know, hopefully we can improve both access and quality through, you um, I guess, investigative reporting. Can you tell us the relationship between mental health and education? So I think that's a topic that actually comes up a lot um, in, in my interviews. And I mean, to be clear, I don't think that education is a substitute for quality um, mental health treatment. Um, but, you know, I have talked to a lot of people that, you know, say, you know, when they first started taking college classes, particularly sort of the more, uh, I guess humanities focused where maybe you're you're asked to write reflection papers or you know an English class where you're right you know asked to write essays about your personal experience like through those academic activities like people really start to reflect on um you know their experiences through a different lens um in some ways it like gives you a language to talk about um you know things that might have happened in your past when you were a child or growing up or um you know or studying history and sort of understanding the you know systematic racism of our institutions or systematic oppression of of certain groups of people so um you know i think the connection there to mental health is like it it sort of gives people some of the tools to start processing things. And I mean, at, at the same, at the same time, like I think when colleges and um, professors go into prisons, like they need to recognize that, you know, I think trauma informed practices are, um, are really important and like, you know, designing assignments in such a way that, um, 
you're helping people process things and you're not just like triggering or asking them to sort of do, you know, share the worst thing that ever happened to them. I don't know if I'm, if, yeah, that's kind of my take on that. You know, you know um, thinking about that also, that was a question that I had because I'm big on mental health. And first, it's always trying to find a correlation um, because this is what I do. And I want to know, I want to give our listeners you know, alternatives um, that they can focus on and try to help their loved one out on some level or another. So thanks for that. What are some other victims or reasons you have that will bring these ideas to fruition? Um, I mean, I think one of the other things that has sort of developed out of the coverage of prison education that I've been doing is actually, you know, working with incarcerated writers around the country. Um, And again, just like figuring out how that works and like, you know, sort of providing a platform. So I'm, you know, people are not just sources, they're able to tell, able to tell their own stories. You know, again, like the editing is very different. Um, You know, edits dictated over the phone, you have to wait for a handwritten draft to to be sent to you. So that, you know, that took a little bit of time to figure out how to do that. But, um, you know, we're working with some incredible writers, some of them are there in Washington State, I've done some co reporting with um, some of the journalists working at um, different prison newspapers. Um, and that's been really cool because I think in some ways, um, you know, incarcerated journalists have more access than I will ever get um, being on the outside. But then, you know, I can sort of supplement their ability to tell the stories that they want to tell with like outside research and things like that. So, um, and I think right now is sort of a big moment for prison journalism. There are a couple of organizations that are really focused on providing journalism training behind bars. Prison Journalism Project is one example um, and Rasan Thomas, who is the um, Rasan New York Thomas, um, he's the inside host for um, the Ear Hustle podcast out of San Quentin. Um, he's actually, fingers crossed, getting out um, in just a couple of months. And his nonprofit, Empowerment Avenue, is working to pair outside journalists with inside journalists, um, again, with the idea of kind of providing direct access for incarcerated writers to have their work published in mainstream media. So, um, that's a really kind of exciting um, thing that's happening. And I'm really excited to be a part of it and use Open Campus and College Inside as a platform for that. Oh, well, that's, that's, I'm just hearing about this. I think that's great. You guys are doing some tremendous work. Um, and I know that a lot of the writers on the inside, some of them are not known, uh, but there's so many and they're so gifted and talented um, in how they express themselves. Hopefully when you guys are promoting that, you remember to grab a hold of some of this talent um, and put it to good use because these are the guys that are telling the stories, both educationally and both, you know, just their inside experience. So I'm looking forward to that myself. Um, and lastly, we want to know how can you be reached if someone listening wants to make a donation or help you with funding? Um, because uh, the work that you guys are doing, I've read your articles, it's really informative. We want to make sure that you guys are able providing such great content um so my my mailing address is um open campus media 2460 17th avenue number 1015 um santa cruz california 95062 um that's our mailing address but uh, obviously the easiest way to get a hold of me is email it's charlotte at opencampusmedia.org um, and you can always see our content at opencampusmedia.org as well um and that that mailing address is also if someone inside wants to write to me to request to be placed on our mailing list um that's the the mailing address to use do you have any final words uh we talk about family members also and people around the world who might have taken it but do you have any final words for our listeners 
Um, just thank you so much for having me on today. I'm always excited to talk about um, prison education, and um, I look forward to hearing from you if you're interested in learning more about um, the work I do with College Inside. Thank you so much, darling. I hope that the event will work with you soon. And I will, you know, send you some information about some of the work that we're trying to do here in Washington State. Um, and maybe, you know, prison education is the first part of that because until people understand, you know, or learn how to reason and think from an academic level, um, a lot of times they can articulate or put in motion some of their plans and their ideas. So thank you so much for being here with us. And we are definitely going to stay in touch. Great. Thank you so much. Have, have a great afternoon. You too. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speaker or our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the wall behind and beyond.